Retreats are sacred space, are transformative space, and they act like a, a, an amplification. We can really uh, zoom in on the moment and on the process of who we are or what we are. What we, what we gain from this is no different than anything that we fully attempt to gain mastery over in our life. Whatever is meaningful to us, whatever discipline we really undertake. If you think of discipline as coming from the word, word disciple, and a disciple being uh, someone who does what they love to do, we could think of ourselves as um, the disciples of truth, of love and understanding. And that we do the work we need to, to do, which is perhaps the most difficult work of all, the greatest art of all, or the most profound science of all. Come into this retreat to, with this amplification of, of the nature of things, uh, an attunement to gain a certain mastery that becomes with time even more and more subtle. It's like layering, uh, layers that peel off. We see something <coughs> far more amazing and mysterious than we could have imagined than before. And that keeps deepening. Once our beloved Bodhisattva was born in the kingdom of Kasi. He was born in a Smith family that excelled in crafts uh, and was very gifted, although his parents were very poor. They lived near another village that was much larger. It's like a thousand houses. And the um, primary Smith family in that village was a favorite of the king. He was rich, of great substance, and he was also known to have uh, an exceedingly beautiful daughter. And they were known for their their incredible ironworks, the finest tools, razors, axes, plow, plowshares. Everyone came to this village, and particularly to this family, if they wanted something fine. The legend of the maiden's beauty spread to all the outer lying villages, including the ones with our bodhisattva. And when he first began hearing of her, he said, I want to marry her. You know, women would be talking about her uh, at the wells and the, and the men of the village at their haunts. Uh, so her legend spread. He was confident of himself and of his great skill. So he made one very delicate needle. And he made a case, a sheath for that, that also looked like a needle. And, if, and several more, as you will find out. This delicate but very strong needle, after it was sheathed several times, was put in a tube and then in a sheath. And he took it with him. How he made it, one cannot say, for this comes from that very special knowledge of the bodhisattvas. But you can trust that it was a very unusual needle. So he went from Kasi to this other great village. Uh, and he went down the street of the head smith and he started to sing, you know, who would, 
like to buy this great needle that threads so easily, it's very sharp, can even pierce metal, he claimed, and so delicate it can float. Anyone who would really like the finest tools of their craft would want this needle. So poetically he put this out, and the young maiden heard his voice, and she thought she was feeling great that day. But once she heard his voice, she felt like she awoke from a, 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 a dreadful sickness and had suddenly been showered with a thousand bottles of uh, Perrier water. <laughs> <laughs> so she went out to the front veranda and said, who wants to sell needles in a village of Smiths, especially on this street and especially in front of this house? where the king himself comes for his, uh, you know, his ironworks from this house. And the Bodhisattva said, well, anyone who wants the finest things that are made, anyone who is a master of their craft would want this needle. For no one has such a needle as this. And no one can imagine what such a needle can do. If your father knew what kind of needle this was, he would not only want it, he'd be so grateful, he would let you marry me. And, and not only that, the bold Bodhisattva said, he would give me all his wealth. And the father heard all this and he said, call that young man in here. <laughs> so he went in and says, you know, who are you? Where did you come? Who's your family? What do you do? The Bodhisattva answered all those questions. And then he says, what's this about a needle that you have? And the Bodhisattva said, well, sir, I have a needle unlike any that you have ever seen. And well, show me what it can do. And the Bodhi wise Bodhisattva said, well, do you think it's wise that I just show one person and have to show all 1,000 smiths in this village? Why not call them all together and I'll show them all at once? Fine, said the head smith. And he called all the villagers in, all the head smiths, and they came and said, we wish to see what you have here. And we wish to see what it can do. So the Bodhisattva said, Master, I want you to bring an iron anvil, your heaviest, thickest, most dense iron at, uh, anvil, and a bronze bowl of water. Please bring that, and then I'll show you this needle. And he began to pull it out, you know, but kind of cover his hand over it, and everyone's straining, the interest is uh, building up. So very strong man brought in this big, heavy iron anvil and the uh, bronze bowl of water. The Bodhisattva then took the needle from the tube case that he had, and he handed it to the head smith. And he took it, he saw it, and it was very indeed a very sharp needle. He said, is, is this the needle? The Bodhisattva <coughs> said, no, that's the sheath. And he turned it up around and he couldn't figure out, you know, how to pull the sheath off. So the Bodhisattva took it, and a little trick with his thumbnail, pulled it out, put the sheath down next to the, on the table where the smith was sitting, and handed him uh, the needle. 
And he took it. He said, is this the needle? The Bodhisattva said, no, that's the sheath. He took it again and peeled that away. Put that down and handed him again. He says, ah, this is a fine needle. Bodhisattva says, no, that's still the sheath. He still looked it up and down. He couldn't see how it was a sheath or how to pull it out. The Bodhisattva again took it with a special little pressure at the end, pulled off yet another sheath. Seven sheaths came off. And he said, here's your needle. He couldn't even feel the weight. He could hardly even feel the texture of it. And he says, well, is such a thing strong? The Bodhisattva said, have your attendants lift that iron anvil on top of the bronze bowl of water. It's not only strong, it's the most delicate needle you've ever seen. And then have them pound it through the iron anvil. So one of the attendants came, held the needle, pounded it into the iron anvil. It went right through easily, like through butter, and then fell in the bronze bowl of water. <coughs> where there it just floated, moving neither up nor down. And all thousand villages in chorus said, awesome, awesome. <laughs> and flicked their fingernails, that's how they clapped in those days, and waved handkerchiefs. And they said, never in all our lives have we even heard by rumor of such a smith and such a craft. And truly you're a great, if not the greatest ever in this land. And with that, there was a sprinkling of the water and they, you know, the daughter was given in marriage to the Bodhisattva, and they lived happily ever after as the Smith family. <laughs> and he was renowned for thousands of generations for his, his craft. amplification of retreats, we start seeing uh, wisdom and the skillful means that, uh, that accompanies and supports this wisdom and the compassion that supports the birth of this wisdom on ever more subtle levels. When we leave here, it's the same practice. It's not as amplified, usually, unless you have a very unusual life and you can sit for at least six hours every day. You're not going to maintain the power of this, uh, the force of concentration. Remembering that the, the, the practices we do here, the, the triple training of sila, samadhi, panya, uh, which is the three trainings comprising the eightfold path, um, involves the ability for the mind to become unified. And that's uh, the sacred space of sila, of silence, uh, the continuity, the seamless sati or mindfulness <coughs> is the condition in which the, uh, the fractured pieces of mind uh, cohere, coalesce again, become like a placid, still, 
uh, pond that reflects clearly the, the uh, shoreline, the tree line, the horizon mountain line, and the, the clouds, the sky. That kind of clarity, that kind of cohesion of mind is rare to attain. That will be the first that you notice that disappears when you begin to leave. And you, you'll miss that for the most part. But in time, you'll find that you can still bring with you a kind of mindfulness where you'll have moments of that. That will depend, of course, on how much you're able to maintain this kind of non-doing awareness. Kind of bare awareness that we practice here. We obviously can't continue with the bare awareness when we leave here. We wouldn't allow you to leave here with that kind of awareness because you wouldn't get very far if you were noting everything as you pulled out, you know, <laughs> about intending to turn left, intending to turn left, intending to wheel, intending, 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 turning, 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 turning. You just wouldn't get very far at all. You know? You'd be driving, you know, intending to look in the rearview mirror, looking, looking, looking. Mack truck coming, wheeling down, noticing, noticing, noticing. <laughs> breaking, breaking, breaking. Driving into the bushes. <laughs> we use a different kind of mindfulness. We use the mindfulness of clear comprehension uh, uh, along with this bare attention that we can use for moments but we rely mostly on what's called sampajanya, uh, the mindfulness of clear comprehension, more of an engaged, general awareness, interactive, interdependent with others. We're engaged with the field the, of energy between uh, events and people and our surround, paying a real close attention. That's a more uh, unified and panoramic attention uh, that's, that's not the momentary kind. The momentary kind, though, is still really important to try and generate in our daily practice, our daily sittings, our moments when we can pause. So when we leave here, we leave with the same practice. We leave with these, these, with these three trainings of sila, samadhi, and panya. We still can practice the, the, the samadhi, our, our uh, uh, and, and the samadhi of our meditation practice is dependent upon the sila. The sila is skillful living. Our speech, our actions, our livelihood, bringing an awareness to our speech, our actions, our livelihood, having them informed by our wisdom practice. Sila isn't something we leave behind when we start again in serious meditation practice, when we start our samadhi, energy, mindfulness, and concentration. Sila is uh, more fulfilled in our meditation practice. Moment to moment, as we are mindful, we're practicing uh, sila. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. And it's still not left behind in the training of wisdom. It flowers, it blooms, it comes to fruition. It's fulfilled in wisdom. Then it's wisdom that informs all our actions, our speech, our livelihood. Not a set of rules, 
right and wrong, is determined not by what someone, anyone outside of, of ourselves has to say. It's not an outer imposed imperative, but informed by our compassion and our clear seeing. It's said that the world is held together by sila, and that when it falters, that the earth herself shakes and the gods tremble. Potent image. And at times on our planet when there's so much troubles, it's as if we can feel the earth shaking. We can feel the trembling, even the tears of the gods. And we're moved to take whatever action we can to alleviate suffering, to promote goodness as a very extension of our practice. Once the Bodhisattva was born as Sakka, king of the gods, the devas. And he was fond of sitting on his golden throne, which itself was pretty magical, because it would inform him of any great event on the earth. Some tragedy going on or some great act of sila someone was performing and the, the chair would heat up and he'd obviously feel hot where he was sitting. But then he'd look into, with his sight, he'd look into the earth realm and see what was happening. So one day he's sitting there and it heated up. He looked into the earth realm and what he saw was dark, thick masses of smoke. He heard the howling of wolves and the haunting cry of the loons. And he looked closer and he saw uh, children unattended and lonely old people and sick people. And he saw war and ravaged lands. And he cried the tears that fell like meteors into the planet. The planet trembled. And he thought, I must do something. So Ananda, his, uh, Ananda in a former life was a, his charioteer in this, in this life of the Bodhisattva. And he was a charioteer with great powers. He could turn himself into any form like a chameleon. So Bodhisattva, as king of the devas, said, I want you to take on your form of Big Blackie which he loved to do. So immediately the charioteer turned into Big Blackie, this massive big dog with thick matted hair and uh, f long fangs of teeth, and he breathed out smoke and fire, and when he growled, everything shook. And he said, let's go. So Saka himself turned himself into a forester with a bow and arrow on his back, and the two of them jumped through the vibratory changes and landed on earth you know, with these grosser bodies. And they landed right at the palace of a king at the time who was one of the uh, main problems in war mongers and so forth, polluters. And when they landed, there was a, a trembling of the, of the palace walls and the guards saw them and said, who are you? And Saka said, I am a forester and this is Big Blackie. Big Blackie's jaw dropped and flames and smoke came out. And the soldiers freaked out and they tried to close the gates. And they yelled to all the other 
guards, close the gates, close the gates. But before those words were even halfway out, Big Blackie jumped up in the air and Sokka grabbed his, his, his mane and they went flying 75 and a half feet over the walls, right into the center of the palace. And when they, when they landed, Sokka said, you know, herd, the Big Blackie. So he ran up and started to herd all the people together, running, screaming in all kinds of directions. And the queen and the king, they ran up to the top turret of the palace and shouted down, you know, who are you and what do you want? And uh, Sokka said, I'm a forester. This is Big Blackie, and Big Blackie is hungry. <laughs> so the queen and the king, they ordered they have all the food that was left from breakfast. <laughs> Big pile of food. And <laughs> one gulp, it was gone. Big Blackie is still hungry, Sokka said. So they... The king and queen shouted out orders and they went out in all directions in hundreds of carts and brought back mountains of food, piles of bread and corn and veggies and lasagna and spinach <laughs> tofu and Ben and Jerry's. Everything was in a huge pile of food bigger than this whole center, in the center of the palace court. And boom, gone, just like that. Disappeared. Big baggy. <laughs> Smoke and flames coming out. Big Blackie is still hungry, said Sokka. The king and the queen and all the people are, are shaking and frozen and they're getting very focused and attentive and they said, we have no more food. You know, what will Big Blackie do now? Will he, who, will, who will he eat? Will he eat us? Big Blackie, said Sokka, will eat more. Big Blackie eats all of his enemies. Well, who are his enemies, said the king and the queen. And at that, after all that focus and attention and kind of shaking everyone up, and they're all kind of sweating together, Sokka begins to soften, and he begins to shed his appearance as a forester. And he turns more into his radiant rainbow body of the deva, the shining ones. And then together with Blackie, they begin to raise up into the air. And Sokka says, his enemies are oppression, discrimination, poverty, uncaring, fear, anger, greed, hatred, ignorance, going up and going up. And then with this honey-sweet voice, the Bodhisattva, now clearly in his radiant goddess, God body, says, you know, take care of yourselves. Love yourselves again. Take care and educate your children. Take care of the elders, and the lonely, and the sick. Take care of your land again. Don't cut down all your forests and pollute your rivers. Make peace with your neighbors. Look into your eyes. Disappear way up into the clouds now and back into his own palace on the throne. He looks down one last time and there everyone now is reaching out, taking each other's hands. And tears are streaming down their eyes and they're vowing to do better. 
to look after themselves and all others. And Sucka smiles, reaches down and pets Big Blackie, who refuses to turn back into the charioteer. <laughs> Along with great joy and all the others, Big Blackie also lives inside of us. And with the Bodhisattva's guidance, our inner Bodhisattva, compassionate and skillful guidance, Big Blackie, when necessary, sets those boundaries, says what she or he sees, corrects error. Not finding fault with the person, but distinguishing between the goodness, inherent goodness of the person and unskillful behavior. Separating the issues from the personality, taking action where needed. This too is a cause for unification and for peace, for uh, holding together the fabric of the world we live in, for causing the earth to cease shaking and the gods and goddesses to cease from trembling. Big, big Blackie is the manifestation of our inner fierce compassion. The healthy boundaries to replace uh, the boundaries, former boundaries of fear or anger or aversion. The equanimity to hold this fierce compassion. So with that as a basis, we also need to feed that. And we feed that from our sittings and, and our practice, our daily practice. Try to sit every day. Try to find a time and a place that you can commit to, that you can be these disciples of love and understanding. It's often helpful to sit in the same place and, and to uh, make it a place, make it a sacred place and space. However you do that, with flowers or rocks or image or photos, Imbue it with the power that you feel from having sat here for 10 days or three weeks. And so it's an inviting uh, space. It says, come and see, ehi pasako, come and sit, take refuge, take precepts, just lean back on time and watch how things are appearing and disappearing. And then, and then do it. Whatever minimum time a day you can do, commit to that. If you can commit to only 45 minutes, do that. If you can sit longer, do that. If you can only commit to 30 minutes, then do that. And then if you sit longer, do. If you think you can only realistically commit to 20 minutes, do that and then sit as long as you can more. You can only sit for five. Do it. A friend and student who had a very busy life working uh, somewhere between 80 and 500 hours a week or something in New York uh, 
came to retreat, didn't practice, burned out, come to retreat, didn't practice, burned out, maybe did this five times, and then vowed that he would do something. And what he vowed he would do was, at the very minimum, every night before going to bed, get in the posture. For one second. And then sit f for long, you know, as long after that one second as he could. Two seconds, or three. And more times than not, he, you know, would sit longer than that. But it was something about just getting in the posture. It was like uh, being the embodied Buddha. What that stands for when we look at it. The embodiment of awakening, of peace, of compassion, of wisdom. But just find what your minimum is and, and to commit to it. That's being a disciple of love and understanding. If you have the time, you could do some walking first. People often find if you do even 10 minutes of walking, and it doesn't have to be necessarily slow walking, just a walk in the neighborhood, walk back and forth in your house a few times, that it just starts to soothe the mind-body, drop the distress of the day. And so that when you do finally sit uh, five or 10 minutes later, you feel pretty cooled out. You're already attuned a bit. You drop in a little easier. The sittings won't be the same. You just don't have the amplifying power that you have on retreat. But do it anyway. Even if you're sleepy and it's mostly thoughts and you're no, uh, mostly figuring or planning or recollecting and recalling, um, and do nothing but come back moment to moment like you did on the first day or two here. Or that you're still doing. <laughs> but at least now you feel better about doing it, right? <laughs> Try to keep that feeling better about doing it attitude when you do it. Remember, all of our actions and our practices, the more we inform them by that attitude of non-attachment, the more their fruits are effective in our lives. So we sit without attachment to the fruits. Just sit. That's all. Never mind what happens. Just trust that our commitment to the practice itself will bear its own fruition. Buddha said, wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one so conduct themselves so wisdom may increase. Wisdom springs from meditation. It's not that we can sit and make wisdom happen. It's like this participation in a confluence of conditions. Can't will it to happen. But the conditions will find their uh, their critical mass, their fruition level when they come together. And then there's an opening. There is a scene. There is insight. A friend in India once wrote me, uh, enlightenment happens by accident. Meditation makes us more accident prone. <laughs> you know, so we just sit no matter what happens with the, with the uh, confidence, with the faith. In, in the fruition, without any attachment to it. 
your time of solitude that you take is valuable too. And during the day, even if you're working amongst people, if you just are quiet for periods of time, inwardly, and just stop at what you're doing, take a breath, feel your body, inhabit your body, fill your body with awareness. Or when you walk uh, from one spot to another, or to lunch, or up and down the elevator, down the hall, across the street, just get in the habit of using whatever anchor is available to you. Body is always uh, a primary one, and immediately available. If you want to tune in a little more, just touch the breath. You know, let environmental uh, phenomena be reminders, sudden sounds, and so forth. But then because this is that engaged awareness, this interactive, clear comprehension level of mindfulness, we need to bring this to all, our, all of our activities, our speech and our actions as well. Feeling, getting in touch, and this, here's where the uh, training and awareness of intentions helps. What's our intention, or our purpose, or our aim in communicating with this person that we're about to communicate with? Particularly uh, if it might be a difficult communication. Staying in touch with your underlying motivation. Feeling your body, feeling the tone of your speech. There's so many ways in which we use our uh, mental phenomena and, uh, and uh, vocal and uh, physical, all as anchors to stay in the moment. And, and really, it's amazing how things can shift in our lives, in our communication, with this presence of mindfulness. You know, the ability to absorb and transform, uh, uh, say, angry energy that comes at us. You know, or hold the space and just uh, by your own presence and your own calm and your own ability to listen and th see things clearly, to uh, say what it is that, you, that you're seeing or hearing or where you feel not seen and heard. There's nothing, there's no part of our lives where we can't bring, where this awareness doesn't fill up and conform like filling water into uh, an empty vessel uh, what the situation is. And then, our, based on that, based on the sila, based on the, our meditation practice, the samadhi, the wisdom, the expression of our insight. One way of this expression of insight is, is through service. You've heard enough now about the amplified insights of insight practice. You know, seeing the nature of phenomena. It's an uh, ephemeral nature. It's uh, um, uh, uncontrollable nature. The insecurity, instability, the transparency or emptiness. We've talked about all that and had, uh, you know, glimpses of what that's all about. In daily life, it's more manifesting our insight. Selfless service is, continues the practice. 
of this panya, of this wisdom. Service is one of the ten skillful actions in Buddhism, the ten punyas. Punya means a, a positive, skillful, wholesome inner energy. Gold, merit, it's usually called. Veya vacha, service, practice of service, the attention to rendering care or help. It's an extension of our insight practice because it requires the attunement of our heart to things as they are, to the interconnected nature of things, and understanding uh, the nature of things and living from that understanding. Knowing the ephemeral or uncertain quality of things, the empty nature of things, that causes us to, to yield to this goodness within us, this gold within us. So that service becomes a practice with, with both confidence in the fruits of our service and at the same time practicing with an attitude of non-attachment. Letting go any idea of the fruits, any control of what's going to happen. Because it's a practice, questions of disillusionment are sure to come up in the way that we uh, practice this service. You know, why do service? What good does it do? How will it change anything? The immensity of suffering in the world. How can one little gesture of helping the neighbor, you know, uh, or helping out in the family, this was the attitude of it being practice, selfless service. You know, what's, how does it really help? Or, you know, how might I actually be hindering things in larger uh, projects of service? A project uh, that we're doing in, in Upper Burma, for example, brings a lot of quandaries. And this is an area that, uh, that some feel, including myself, there should never been um, a dirt road made. And that there should never have been electricity brought up there. And both, of which weren't, both of which were not there not so long ago. But now there's electricity. And there's water wells, and uh, th there's a dirt road. Part of our project was, is, uh, involves uh, paving the road uh, near the hospital to prevent dust and the dust problems of dust in the hospital. Uh, but a number of the elders in the community there, including the, the abbot of the monastery and the uh, uh, others, and of course the government people, they wanted the road longer. They wanted the road to match up with the other paved road. And um, so at one point, you know, they said, well, we want the road to be from, from this monastery to the hospital or up to the village. And that was my understanding. I said, oh, okay. Well, that seems okay. And then later I learned, well, it was actually bigger than that. It was a, a mile and a half. You know, and it went all the way to the other village, Sagain Hills Village, uh, past the hospital to the, uh, the other village, Wachet Village, where we're doing a lot of work. And I thought, well, 
that's what they think that we're going to do, and okay, we'll do it. Maybe it'll help, you know, in emergencies. They can uh, move people quicker in and out on that road, and it'll eliminate the dust all along where all the other nunneries and monasteries are, and uh, maybe eliminate uh, problems in the village, 3,000 people. But then thinking about it and talking to my other colleagues who were, weren't there at the time, they said, well, it's too much, and, you know, maybe we're doing things too fast, and it'll bring too much change. And so later, uh, uh, my friend who stayed and directed the project, you know, tried to kind of back out. Well, let's just do a quarter mile around the hospital. That's all we really want to do now, and we'll do the arrest later. And then she sent one fax saying, you, know, you don't backpedal. She said, the ship has already left the port. And there's this expectation already, and of course, and then the government is involved, and they don't have uh, the money to do the road, so they're happy to receive ours, of course. And so we just, well, what's their agenda? Why do they want the road? They don't want to really eliminate the dust in the hospital. Do they? <laughs> you know, the monasteries? I don't think so. Uh, and so, and that's the quandary. You know, it, it gets in the, in the, in the project that's the intention is to purify, have a big enough water tank, purify the water for the hospital, monastery, provide purified drinking water for all 3,000 villages. Then there's the question of where, where is that going to be distributed? If we distribute it in the village, then the women who in this village have for 700 years walked together down to the river, and now they don't even walk all the way down to the river all the time because there's, there's wells uh, closer to the village. They'll stop doing that and their whole social fabric is likely to change. And so there's a, there's a way in which we have to really pay attention and really listen and really try to enter the flow of this community, which is a very interdependent community, very traditional. The community revolves around the monastery, the monasteries. Uh, and there's the interconnectedness, interplay. So to acknowledge, you know, that some change will certainly happen, but how do we make the least impact? How do we do it so that it feels like it's coming from within that relationship? Which is a wonderful, wonderful way to approach any service that we do. You know, how can we do it in a way that doesn't feel separating, divisive, disconnecting? That the person feels empowered who is receiving the help, receiving the service. Through service, we begin to connect deeply with our own wisdom and compassion and love. All that really matters begins to come to us. We yield to these inner uh, forces of goodness that are already there. They begin to be lifted out. We overcome the fear that we can't do it or the shame of, of feeling that we are only able to serve in a limited way within our limitations. 
I had no idea that the, the project in Rochette would blossom so quickly. And I began to feel really helpless. I began to feel unprepared and, and really limited. I didn't know how to, I don't know anything about water, <laughs> you know, water purification systems and, and pumps and design and all of that, you know, or uh, in terms of school education. Okay, let's, it's no problem. I just started, it was easy. Pick one girl, one boy. But now there's 28. How are they picked? Why are they picked? And what, and what qualifications? Only because they get the best marks, you know? But what about the ones because who are suffering from poverty are slower learners but have really good potential? So I, I, don't, know, I don't know anything about this stuff. In the hospital, and the hospital equipment, you know, the, I, the feeling at first is, yeah, sure, I'll help any way you want. I, I get some doctors to come or uh, raise funds or collect medicine and all this. And, but, you know, that's, you can have a huge hospital with rooms with machinery just collecting dust all of a sudden, having no focus, no identity. I was going, I was going crazy, you know. I was entering a field of things I knew nothing about. <laughs> all I did is I wanted to help a couple of people, you know. But you know what happens? Just by, by yielding to those inner forces uh, and making it a practice and, and feeling really moved to do it, all the right people began to show up. People who knew about water or, or knew how to find out about it. Or people who knew how to run uh, projects or knew how to learn a lot faster than I ever will, <laughs> and knew about medicines and doctors and school and education. And, and all of a sudden, it just started to come together, like magic. And, uh, and for me personally, something was really fulfilled for so many years of, of teaching and feeling really content and, and honored, privileged to be able to do this kind of work here I also felt a longing to be doing some extension of this work, some extension of my personal practice. Teaching is also practice. But I just kept having visions and dreams about working out in the borderlands somewhere with people who would never ever have the opportunity or chance to come to a meditation retreat or be able to even think about it. I just wondered how that would ever happen friends who work in Africa and India and South America and thought, well, maybe I can just go with them sometime and see. I didn't know how it would happen, but all of a sudden, returning to Burma a couple of years ago, there it was. It was right before me. Didn't even know it. Didn't even know it, but I was in, a, in this field of loving kindness and generosity. And it was such a natural gesture to want to, to help and to leave with, uh, with gifts, you know. So I left by supporting someone in the village and a couple of school children and uh, donations to the hospital and whatnot. And uh, came back sometime later and others said, gee, that's, that's really neat. I'll, I'll support a couple of kids. Or... You know, I want to help the hospital. You know, and then all of a sudden it felt like, gee, this is what I've 
wanted to do. It felt like filling that place of practice that hadn't, in some way, had not been met in me. Some way in which the, the fruits of our understanding, of our compassion, wisdom, get expressed in the outer world. The mystery of service is like no different than meditation practice. What comes, the fruits, remains to be seen and understood. We can't foresee it. It's our equanimity that comes from mindfulness that we pay attention. We pay attention to conditions, whether they're inner conditions when we sit or the outer conditions in the world where we feel moved to act. We pay attention to conditions and we take action, whether it's meditation or, or, uh, or service, selfless service in the world. Completely surrender to that action. You know, Not being afraid or going through the fears that I went through. I can't do this. This is I don't know anything about it, or it's too big, or I might mess up. You know. My in my wish to help I might really mess up. But it's just going through that and trusting and willing to learn and listen. The other the other aspect of uh, of this not of equanimity is the non attachment to results. Let go of results see the conditions and act with the fullness of our being. Just completely let go into it and surrender to it. But then, leave the results up to uh, natural law, to karma, to dhamma, things as they are. We have no control over the results. We just listen in the process of the way. We feel like, uh, you know, I should be uh, pushing instead of pulling. You know, turn a little bit to the left here. Or try to hold back. Maybe the ship has left port, but let's throw some anchors over. You know, slow it down a bit. On that, on this, you know, like the road project. Okay, we'll build it all, but only in slow stages and only if you build speed bumps and signs. Quiet meditation zone, quiet hospital zone. You know, so a, prob a situation that could be a problem, we'll try to turn that into something that actually helps, helps the situation. Preserving the ethic, pre pre preserving the sanctity of Sagain Hills. Service, perhaps more than any spiritual practice, offers the opportunity to enter uh, parts of ourselves uh, long missing or hidden. You know, or previously unknown. Selfless service developed, you know, made part of our practice, reveals the inherent mystery of being. Because it requires so much of us the, the, to let go. You know, so we connect with that, that our selfless or empty core. Begin to not have any idea who we are, what we are. It happens in the meditation, too. People come out of retreats after, with the intention of coming to find out who am I, what am I, and find themselves more than ever not knowing who I am, what I am, and yet have never in their lives felt closer to themselves. It's a funny thing, that. People who practice meditation or people who practice the selfless service 
discover these mysterious parts of themselves, discover more their selfless nature, and have less and less a sense of themselves, you know, who I am, what I am, and yet feel closer to themselves than they ever have in their lives. We sense who we are more from the inside out and not trying to figure out life from the outside in, not trying to know the wholeness of things from outside in. Just start with our inner experience. Just start in the way we've amplified our own inner life while we've been here. And that continues out in the world in the ways we find, because all of our life, no matter what we do, can be service. What our work is, what our station is, it can all be service. It's just an attitude. It's that attitude of mind, of rendering presence, of rendering care, of rendering an extension of love and understanding. The attitude of detachment, not for gain, an attitude of detachment that guides us through the, the way of the world, the opposites, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. So service becomes an inner attitude, not an obligation. It just becomes a way of life. close with one last story. Once the Bodhisattva was born as an elephant and she grew to this mighty mass of silver with a, uh, a trunk with gold flakes and feet uh, of uh, painted lacquer and tongue of red velvet and eyes like diamonds. She was a beauty to behold beyond imagination, not only outwardly, but inwardly, for she had the qualities of these, uh, of these uh, um, punyas, the ten punyas, and the ten paramis. And the king at the time uh, made her the state elephant and decided to ride in full regalia through the uh, city, adorned like a city of the gods. Went riding through on this festival day, and all the people gawked and cheered and revered, but not the king. Only this incredibly looking uh, white elephant. And the king got jealous and said, I must do away with her. Called the Mahout, who grows up with the elephant, and said, This elephant isn't very well trained, is she? Mahout said, Sire, she's the most well-trained uh, elephant in all of India. Well, let's see, prove it. And he got down, the Mahout got up. Let's go up to Mount Vilupala, this mountain right up behind the palace that's really steep. So they went behind, she went right up. And the king came following with his whole retinue. And at the top, was on the edge of the cliff, the king said, well, let's see her stand on three feet. 
It's a very gentle gesture of the hand of the mahout, and the elephant very easily did that. Well, let's see her do two feet. Two front, two back. Oh, I bet she can't do one foot. One foot perfectly, even pure away. <laughs> and the king said, well, let's see if she can stand on air. And of course, by this time, the mahout suspected the king was trying to kill her by walking over this side of the cliff. And so he whispered to his friend, he said, if you have the powers of the great beings, I want you to rise up into the air and we'll fly off to Benares, to a better kingdom. <laughs> and without hesitation, the Bodhisattva rose up into the air and she started going off right over the cliff to the gawking amazement of the king. And Mahut said, wait, halt, turn around turned around and faced the evil king, who was, of course, Devadatta in a former life, the evil cousin of the Buddha, and said, you know not what you had. You know not, therefore, what you lose. You didn't know that what you had would bring you all the glory, all the splendor, all the power beyond your imagination. You could not see her inner beauty. So even though you have such a powerful station as being a king of a large realm, you shame yourself and you bring yourself and all your people down. Good luck. Bye-bye. Turn around. And they flew off. In no time at all they arrived in Benares. And the queen and king there came out because they saw an elephant flying around the sky. <laughs> and said, if you're here on our behalf, please come down. And so they lowered, they came down, and the Mahout got off, and the Mahout and the Bodhisattva both bowed to the king and queen, explained the story. And the queen said, it's good that you came here. We see that here is a being of great value. And they made her a beautiful stall, made her the, the elephant, of all the kingdom. Stahl was caparisoned with embroideries and a golden bowl of, of, for drinking and uh, uh, you know, a huge barn for tons of stuff to eat, leaves and whatnot. And from the moment of the Bodhisattva's presence, things started to, to happen. The first thing that the queen king did was divide their kingdom up. They kept a third for themselves, but they gave a third to the mahout and a third to the elephant. And from that moment, their sovereign sway grew to include all of the ancient world at that time. And everyone benefited. For the effect of those parmes radiated out, pulsed out, and brought comfort and abundance and peace everywhere to all beings. So of course, so also this is mighty mass of silver live within us. And we need only value what he, she represents. The Dhamma, the truth. 
and all else will unfold. Let's sit together for a moment. May we have the clear vision to see clearly the nature of things, conditions, and take the appropriate action or non-action. And may we have the wise detachment to let go of control, to let go of the results so that goodness may follow us always like our own shadow.